0: good morning thank you all so much for um, finding some morning energy to come and join us for this conversation this is the panel contingent possibilities career options within and beyond the Academy and we are really glad to have you all here um, yeah this is a delightful gathering and I'm very much looking forward to the conversation um, so We're here to explore questions about what are the creative possibilities of contingency and what are the limitations within which we all work to make that creativity happen and to um, choose paths and forge careers and find ways to bring our callings and questions and skills and gifts into this world um, through academic and non-academic work, teaching and non-teaching work, a variety of things. Um, that are possible. <clears throat> so that is what we are talking about today, um, and we want to keep it pretty much informal. We have a, actually quite a lot of time today. This session is supposed to go to 11.30. Um, we'll see if it goes that long, but we're going to start by each person giving about you know, a 10-ish minute discussion about their trajectory through these particular shoals of contingency and how each of us have navigated them. Um, And then um, I have some questions that I'll ask to get us started and then maybe the panelists will ask ourselves questions and then you all can ask questions, there will be questions, there will be answers, there will be conversations, it will be awesome. Um, for those of you who missed the earlier announcement about this, they are recording this session to make it available through the AAR. Um, so. Be mindful of that in how you participate Um, and also what that means is that we are sort of uh, oriented around this microphone so the recording becomes clear Um, so the the recording is a clear one so I'm, I'm asking panelists if they remember and I'm terrible at remembering this myself to repeat a question if they respond to it we're gonna we're gonna each stand up in front of here for our spieling part but are hopeful that our talking chatting part will it will be picked up by the miracles of technology, but that's what this whole setup is about, so just like that. But I'm gonna start by introducing our panelists. Um, Panelists wanted to be introduced in a variety of ways, so these are are, the uh, hybrid introductions that I've come up with. I'm gonna start with Simran. Simranjeet Singh is an educator, writer, and activist who is a frequent commentator on anti-Sikh and anti-Muslim rhetoric and violence. He is a 2018 Luce ACLS Fellow for Religion, Journalism, and International Affairs and a visiting scholar at New York University's Center for Religion and Media. Singh is also a columnist for Religious news, Religion News Service and NYU's Sikh chaplain. He currently serves on Governor Cuomo's Interfaith Advisory Committee for the State of New York and was named as a faith leader to watch in 2018 by the Center for American Progress. He hopes one day to be ambidextrous. I will say, reading that, I think you are closer to that attainment than you may think. Okay. <laughs> Megan? Goodwin is the program director for Sacred Rights, a loose-funded program hosted by Northeastern University that improves communication between religious studies scholars, theologians, and broader American publics. Goodwin's research focuses on gender sexuality, race, politics, and contemporary American minority religions. Her first book, Abusing Religion, Narrative Persecution, Sex Scandals, and American Minority Religion, is under contract with Rutgers University Press, and her current project explores how contemporary American whiteness is or feels threatened by Muslims and Islam, she wanted to forego the option to have a more personally revealing um, element to her biography um, because she wished to plug the book, so I shall say again. Her first book, Abusing Religion, Narrative Persecution, Sex Scandals, and American Minority Religion, is under contract with Rutgers University Press. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Any time. <laughs> Hussein. Hussein Rashid is an aspiring nerf herder.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't know what that is. He's kind
1: of struggling.
0: <laughs> he advocates for contingent faculty and currently sees the fact that more than 70% of the prep- professoriate work in contingent positions as parallel to labor on the first Death Star, the labor is forced, but standards are still high. However, administrative greed and lack of concern for workers cause the whole system to catastrophically crash. His research interests focus on representations of Muslims in American popular culture, and he dabbles in Shia studies. Matthew Bingley. Matthew is a contingent faculty member at Perimeter College, a college of Georgia State University, where he teaches online courses. He's been an online instructor for a decade and also does part-time work in instructional design. His career possibilities were recently expanded when his daughter volunteered him to be in this year's local performance of the Nutcracker. Barring a miraculous discovery that he can actually dance, he says, he does not think it's an alternative career path he should count on at the moment. And I, myself, am Lynn Gerber, and this is my first year at the AAR without an affiliation on my name badge. This is my having to stand in myself in its fully as possible moment. And if that doesn't make me feel like a walking Rorschach test, I don't really know what does. Thank you. And who would like to start? This is my favorite panel.
1: <laughs> One, who would like to start, and <laughs>
0: two, I'm not gonna be like an Uber time- Make the white man start. So oh, make the white man start.
1: That's cold, but you know,
2: sometimes you just gotta do what you gotta do. Reparations.
3: (laughs) Welcome to
4: Sunday. Let's see how this works. Can everyone hear me? All right, I haven't actually stood in front of a group of people in like five years. Uh, Cuz I teach online, the last time I was in a classroom was 2010, I believe. So I'm going to try to keep my voice up, because when you don't practice uh, projecting your voice, you lose it. Um, So I'm contingent faculty. I teach at four different places. Um, Perimeter College is my bread and butter. Um, I'm in one-year renewable contracts uh, there. I keep other teaching contracts for various reasons. Um, So I also teach at Empire State College in New York. Uh, I teach at John Tyler Community College. And I teach at uh, University of Maryland University College. I, I guess when I was preparing this, I, I you know, you say don't have a, an affiliation on your name tag. Um, I kind of realized that I've kind of stopped thinking of myself as contingent faculty anymore because I do these different things. They're just different jobs, um, different sources of revenue, if, if, if I can put it quite so bluntly. Um, I also do instructional design work, and I really enjoy that. Um, I also really enjoy teaching. So that's why I keep everything together and keep doing various different gigs. Um, so uh, a couple things about the instructional design and online. I'm kind of going to jump back and forth between the two because they flow back and forth, and they complement each other nicely. Um, for instructional design, I help faculty build classes um, as part of a third party vendor. Um, I think I could not have had a better background for that than being in religious studies. It's not what I plan to do. Um, but I spend my time analyzing texts, interviewing faculty, um, trying to figure out what the faculty actually want for the course, and then making it look really good for them. Um, so there's that, that interpretive role there. Um, I did formally teach in the classroom. Before I talk about online a bit more, um, I did formally teach in the classroom. I drove all over Western New York. I live in Buffalo. Um, the year my son was born, I had a 90-minute commute each way to the college I taught at. I would leave every morning expecting to get the phone call to turn around and race back to the hospital. Um, it was a long year. And um, the last place I taught in the classroom, um, it's also the lowest paying place. There were no benefits, beautiful campus, beautiful classrooms, they just renovated them all, built a new building, Um, but the the contingent faculty, the adjuncts, um, we shared a desktop computer with the work-study students in the department. Uh, We had no office space. when I asked to change a section that I was teaching for the following year because I had a conflict um, with a better deal to be quite honest. Um, (laughs) They couldn't accommodate that and they didn't invite me back and by that point I was already teaching online so I kind of called it fair game, Um, called it even. Um, So let me say a couple things about online teaching because that's, I spend all my time in the virtual realm and I, I come here and I talk to people and I realize most people teach in the classroom, um, so I'm a bit of an odd person out, but let me just throw some statistics at you. Um, I know it's Sunday morning, but I'll I'll try to keep keep the numbers short. Um, So in 2016, according to the National Center for Education Statistics, um, nearly a third of US students uh, took some online coursework. Um, 15% of students took all their online coursework, took all their coursework online in higher education. Um, More women than men take online courses. The average age of a student taking online courses is 31. Um, I say all that because when we teach online courses, we're teaching uh, what are are often called non-traditional students or adult learners. Um, They're people who who often have jobs, have careers, have family, have other commitments. There's a reason they're taking online classes. Um, They don't have the time or, or the means um, to go to a class uh, two or three times a week or they don't live near a college. Um, I, I say all this because um, if you're like me and you think education is a public good and you think that um, it benefits all of society to have uh, as much access to education as possible, um, online teaching is another tool in the the higher education toolkit, um, another way to reach people. Um, I say that, I'm not saying online education should replace traditional classroom teaching. I've talked to plenty of students who can't, who don't like the virtual space and need to be in a room with people. Um, and I've talked to students who really like online teaching. So, um, And I really enjoy my adult learners, you know, people who ask for an extension because they're, uh, they're having their first baby, for example, or their son or daughter, or their the daughter's having, they're, they're, they're helping with the birth of their first grandchild. or. Um, our students who are deployed. One of the schools I teach at has many military contracts. Um, so, um, so I think it's fair to talk about the overlap with contingency a bit with online teaching. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to get good data and I, I don't have a, a good... Anyway. Um, there are some larger schools like Southern New Hampshire and uh, Uni- University of Maryland um, that kind of work on a model where most of their teaching faculty are contingent. Um, One of the places I teach is the University of Maryland. Um, But I also look at statistics, let's see, I I, I can actually throw some statistics. Uh, Southern New Hampshire, 70,000 students, uh, full-time faculty, 161, part-time faculty, 5,798. Maryland, 50,000 students, uh, 189 full-time students, 3,502 part-time students. Uh, Western Governors, um, more full-time than part-time, but I decided to include it because it's well-known and large. Uh, 72,000 undergraduates, uh, 2,298 full-time, 796 part-time. When I started looking at smaller colleges, like four-year institutions, a lot of them, and I I didn't jot down the numbers, um, a lot of them seem to have their much more full-time than part-time faculty teaching their online classes. so that's something I, I think does need more, more looking at. Um, so a couple things about teaching online. Um, we don't get into office politics. I don't have to worry about sharing who I share a desktop computer with, um, except my kids who steal my computer. Um, take it over. But that's OK. Um, I'm outside of office politics. I don't have to, to drive around. Um, a, a lot of those things just kind of go away. Um, there are some other concerns that come up with online teaching, like intellectual property. When you make an online course you're creating a reusable digital artifact. You're creating something that the university can potentially say, this is ours now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I get very involved with this. Uh, early on I used to share my teaching materials with people and another faculty member uh, took my discussion questions and turned it into an online course that the university then paid him a stipend for. Um, so I, I ended up teaching that course the following year, which was a little odd. Um, I don't share my teaching materials anymore uh, unless, you know, unless there's compensation. Uh, most schools are moving to a model where they do compensate faculty for building online courses, and, and they should. Um, in my other role as an instructional designer, Um, When I work with faculty, I tell them, um, you know, if they're paying you to build the course, they're paying you to build a template that the university will probably own. Um, They're paying you for your discussion questions. They're paying you for your assignments. Uh, If you have personal lectures and you want, if you teach at several different institutions, if you have lectures that are yours that you want to use at other institutions, hold on to them. Don't add them to the course yet. Um, Don't add them to the template because when you teach the course, they'll make a course copy for you. Add your, your personal materials then, because um, then you can retain control over them. Uh, this is kind of a gray area still uh, about who actually owns the courses you build, but um, that's something to keep an eye on. It's better to be, better retain control of your own materials. Um, last thing. Um, So I started this off by saying, I I, I kind of identify myself as as part of this gig economy, um, because I I teach a lot of different places. Um, I do share one thing with a lot of of other contingent faculty. Um, If you work on a contract, um, you may have problems getting benefits, uh, health benefits especially. Uh, There's a sign in one of the halls, um, I don't know if you've noticed the AR contingent faculty signs. Um, There's one in one hall that says, 23% 23% contingent faculty have health care, or health benefits through te- through their, I'm
1: sorry?
4: I'm sorry, it's <laughs> <That's> I- terrible. <laughs> yeah, I-, I agree, it is terrible. Um, I've changed my health insurance four times in the past three years. Um, and and the-, the reason is, is that I-, I-, I do feel fortunate that two of the places I teach do offer me health benefits, um, health insurance, but they are manifestly different in quality and the one that offers the better insurance um, is the one that doesn't always make enrollment, so I have to switch on and off. Um, and that ends up being more expensive, more, more bureaucratically complicated. Um, I have to update my health insurance every time I see a doctor. Um, I think this is one of the things that really, um, if there were a solution to it, that would be great. Uh, if you somehow miraculously could have health insurance that were portable across positions or fit the 21st century economy a bit better, that would be great. Um, I'll, I'll leave that at that. Um well, thank you. Uh
2: good morning everyone. How are we doing? Good morning. Yeah, it almost feels like a weekend, doesn't it? <laughs> Just almost, not quite. Um so my name's Hussein, I'm the aspiring nerf herder. Um trying to get off the Death Star before it implodes. Explodes. Implodes, I guess, if we're doing it ourselves, but a couple things I want to mention before I get into my formal talk. Um, I sit on both committees or working groups that are sponsoring this, the Academic Labor and Contingent Faculty Working Group, Um, and I want to ask you, please, if you haven't done so already, we do have a survey we've put together. Um, You can fill it out at the AAR booth in the exhibit hall. It's a short survey for those of you who have taken it. It should take you between five and seven minutes, Uh, so please do take that so we can gather some data. Uh, to share with the AAR. I also sit on the Applied Religious Studies Working Group, and my chair, Chrissy, is over there. It's her birthday. Can we all give a round of applause for her okay. birthday, please? Um, and she says she bears no blame whatsoever for the Jonestown massacre. Um, <laughs> it's not her. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so, since we've already had conversations on affiliation, it's not where I'd wanted to start, but let me start with the question of affiliation. Uh, I am with uh, two, I'm teaching at two different schools right now uh, as an adjunct. Uh, neither one of them is on my badge because neither one of them is paid for me to be here. Uh, I don't do free advertising. Um, so, you know, you want to pay, you, you want to be known, pay me. Um, that's how these things work. Um, welcome to capitalism, uh, which apparently we teach against even though as we know higher ed is nothing but a neoliberal, neocolonial enterprise to crush ourselves, but that's a separate conversation that we're not gonna get into. Um, so, let me tell you a little bit about my story, where I am and what I'm doing. Um, I'm approaching just about 12 years as a contingent faculty member, not always as adjunct. Um, I have taught at almost a dozen schools at this point. At one point, the highest number of schools I was teaching at was three, so not quite as, uh, uh, as taxing as Matthew is doing. Um, I was in New York taking public transportation. Those of you who know New York meant, know that I, that meant I spent more time uh, in commuting every week than I did in classroom, classroom prep, and office hours combined at these three institutions. Um, that was not the thing that got me thinking about what I was doing in higher ed. There was one school I was at, and I, I, I do believe naming is important. I don't want to get caught up in the naming now. Um, but I had one experience at a school where basically I was told You're, it's a small liberal arts college. I had 50 students in the methods class, two sections of the methods class. And they were like, don't worry about giving them papers. They don't know how to write. It's not worth your effort. Just give them multiple choice exams. And if you can give them the questions at a time to help them study. And at that point, I realized how corrosive this was not just to me but to my students. And you know, there's a lot of self-harm we do to ourselves that we don't realize. But when faced with that ethical moment, and again, you you know that you sort of realize this is really harmful to the people I'm here that I'm meant to serve and work with, that was when my heart sort of caught up with my head because I knew that this wasn't a life I could live. But we have been so conditioned to say that this is the only thing we can do with our lives. Um, and I know that I'm sorry, I've actually lost track of the days. Another plan A was yesterday. I realized I needed to have another plan A. I hadn't failed in academia. Academia was failing itself, was failing me. And I needed to find a way to make this work for me. And that's the story I want to share with you, is how I got this to work for me. Um, What was my other plan A? Um, So I come out of, um, sorry, I was going to say something about Simran, but I've decided not to. My PhD is from Harvard, right? I should be getting job offers up the wazoo. The jobs aren't there. Um, Also, I'm not the stereotypical academic. I believe that our education should be used, and education in general should be used for a public good, right? I undergraduate was Columbia under Edward Said. You learn and you teach because the system is fundamentally broken, and if we can't name what's broken, we can't fix it. Um, And that's the point of what we do. And that's not what academia has become. Separate issue, again, if you're interested about my thoughts, some of the initial ones are on this SSRC report I uh, co-authored on digital humanities. But I was forced with this question then, after this teaching experience, of trying to determine who I was, who am I? And in that process, figuring out that I am an academic not as my primary identity, but because I'm an educator. So what does it mean for me to be an educator who actually enjoys teaching, right? Research is an important part of that process, but how do I figure I am as an educator who enjoys teaching? At this time, I started, I started blogging several years earlier. In 2003, i started blogging in the Wild West of the blogging days, and that got me all sorts of media attention. And I had been, at that point, doing soft consulting with producers and editors on how to shape stories around Islam, specifically. Eventually, that sort of broadened out into uh, religion. That was unpaid because, as academics, we're taught we don't charge money for what we do. We're, thank you, that noise you just made, (laughs) right, right, (laughs) but again, that's what we're socially conditioned to do. Um, But also because then of this media attention and the blogging I was doing, I worked with two presidential campaigns, Howard Dean's campaign and John Kerry's campaign, I continued working with the federal government in various consulting positions um, up until 2016. I think you know why. Uh, <laughs> but again, a lot of my work is on arts, culture, and religion, so doing a lot of that work and a lot of that, con- uh, that engagement, particularly through the U.S. State Department. Um, I also ended up helping launch Religion Dispatches, for those of you familiar with Religion Dispatches and Sacred Matters. After that, uh, I worked with Takun Online to help get them started. Um, I'm on the advisory board in a paid position with uh, Daily, which is now transformed into On Faith, um, so that, you know, that sort of digital space and that digital footprint, and of course I continued doing the, um, the media consulting with producers and editors on how to frame and engage with stories. A lot of this consulting work I continued to do for free because it was academic consulting. Again, we just don't ask money. And One day, finally, I was working with a group and I said, do you have money in your budget to pay me? And they said, yeah, sure, how much do you want? And I gave them a number. And they said, OK, without negotiating. So when it happened again, you know what I did? I asked for more money. And they said, yeah, sure, without negotiating. So this went out like three or four times. And finally, when they started negotiating, I'm like, OK, I'm at the right spot. <laughs> right? Now I know what I'm worth on the free market. (coughs) Uh, What I'm worth on the free market, I can earn in about two days what I earn in most adjunct faculty positions for a semester. Um, Depending on the institution, I can actually do it in a day now. Um, So there's money out there. Um, And so now where I'm working with, I'm still doing some of the media work, I'm still doing some public writing, but I really got invested, I'm very cautious because I know there is a public understanding of religion group here at the AR that's not, when I use that term, That's not. I'm not talking about what they're doing. But thinking about how do we engage the publics and various publics more intelligently around questions of religion. Because my work is in popular culture, I think news media is incredibly important. But I also do a lot of script consulting, so I'm attached to one television show right now. Which I can't tell you about, even though Vanity Fair's reported on it. But there's a legal issue. So, uh, but I've done two. Mo- I've done one movie. I'm working on another documentary uh, as a script consultant. I'm hopefully working with another television show. Um, so this has been an ongoing thing. Thinking about that popular culture. I worked with the Children's Museum of Manhattan on an exhibit, uh, which I think you. I roped you. I don't think I know. I roped this guy into uh, the Children's Museum of Manhattan uh, on a project called. America to Zanzibar, Muslim cultures near and far, which is now traveling the country and exposes young children and their caregivers to Muslim cultures from around the world. The first stop after leaving New York was the Muhammad Ali Center. uh, Sorry, was it Chattanooga, Tennessee? Who thought you would get a whole children's museum exhibit dedicated to Muslim cultures in Chattanooga, Tennessee? It's going to the Muhammad Ali Center in Louisville, Kentucky. It's going to. Chicago, the Sabil Center, we're looking to get it in Omaha, um, in Nebraska, um, and travel internationally. I want you to, you know, for me, this is, A, I love this project, I spent seven years working on it, but also to think about reaching people we wouldn't normally reach, right? Like, this was that educational component where we built out this whole material, like, how do you teach with this? How do you teach people who don't know what it means to be Muslim, not just in America, but around the world beyond what what they see in CNN? Um, I'm also working with the National Jazz Museum uh, on a project on Muslims in Jazz. Uh, So again, bringing together very different audiences, music audiences, museum audiences, thinking about religion in a very particular way. If the Museum, if the Muslims in Jazz exhibit goes well, we'll do a, a larger series on different religious communities and their engagement with jazz. I'm a consultant with several foundations. Um, the one I can't talk about publicly because it's on their website is the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art um, and thinking about how do we engage uh, the arts as a way to do storytelling around religion. So what I found is in all these different spheres, yes, I'm still doing political consulting, although not at the federal level. Um, I'm working with media groups still. I'm doing my own writing still. But now I'm working with these foundations, with these museums, uh, other nonprofits to think about religion in the way religion works in there. This is how I've made academia work for me. I still want that foot in academia. I enjoy engaging students. I enjoy teaching. Um, I wouldn't say I enjoy grading, but I don't resent it either. Right? It's a way to figure out, for me, what students are learning. Right? That's what a good evaluation should be. I'm not going to give that up no matter what happens. Like That's a core part of who I am. But I've got to find a way to make this work for me. And the way I've done this is a way that makes sense that it works for me financially so i try very hard now to only work in uh union shops um because if we right there's a reason schools don't want unions and that's to continue to exploit us and so if we say well you know what i don't want to work for a thousand dollars a semester i don't quite think that's enough to live in any city in america maybe you maybe 1500 no okay maybe you don't really want anybody teaching for you right i mean is it better to work for peanuts and say I'm working in higher ed, or is it better to just hasten the death of the system? Because if you can't make $1,500 working at a Barnes and Noble, you need you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm being a bit flippant here, but we've got to recognize the trade-offs we're making by agreeing to work for those amounts, mm-hmm. right? Um, so what works for me financially, and really only choosing union shops, or, or uh, shops that, that work as though they're unionized, because I recognize there are intermediate steps along the way sometimes, that works for me emotionally and works for me ethically. Because that's the other thing I keep coming back to, is that what ended up breaking me from the idea that I was defined by being an academic was the fact that there was an ethical rupture between what I was expected to do, what I was teaching my students to do, and what the university was making me do. Right, and they're not absolutely 110% not aligned. Right, what we teach our students for and how the university makes us teach it It's not the same thing, right? So how do we make that work? So for me, it's really liberating. If I think of myself as an educator, I can choose these options to say, yeah, I'm an educator in academia and I'm an educator in these other spaces, but altogether, the thing that ties it together, when I ask the question, who am I, it is an educator and what allows me to live that life uh, as both an academic and as a human being. Thank you.
3: Sort who does? Waffle House managers make $65,000 a year, and I think about that all the time.
5: <laughs> Kelly Baker wrote an awesome piece mm-hmm. on whether or not she should have stayed in
3: the gap. Yep. Yep. Yes. And it's
5: in Chronicle Vitae, and it's it's she left her job at the gap when they wanted to promote her to a management position so she could stick with grad <laughs> school. Check it out. It's awesome.
2: It really right. is. And she crunches the numbers on them.
6: Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, a lot of people confuse Hussein and me. I think because we 're brown men with beards in New York, <laughs> but I think I, now listening to him a little more, I think it, it also has to do with our politics. I think our worldviews are very similar. Um, a lot of what he said <coughs> resonates for me, and I you know the the centerpiece of that for me, from what he said um, is this aspect of education for me growing up. I think because of my my personal experiences with racism, I was always taught that the way the the problems of our society were rooted in ignorance, and so the solutions were education. And I I still believe that's a big thing. I realize now that you know there are other issues of power and structure and systems that are at play, um, but education for me since childhood has been this sort of crux of everything I wanted to do. When I was in high school I was president of Future Teachers of America so clearly like I was not the cool kid. (laughs) Not concerned about like my masculinity or anything like that (laughs) or the perceptions of my masculinity I should say. Um, And I went to college in undergrad. My plan was to go into elementary ed. I I chose a school that had a fantastic elementary ed program. so it was very clearly important to me. And as as I went through undergrad, um, I, I moved a little bit into uh, journalism, uh, switched majors again into English literature, and ended up in with a double in English and religion. And all four of those pieces for me, education, journalism, literature, and religion, that's sort of what my life has become. I wasn't sure at the time how it would fit together. Um, and part of the reason I wasn't sure was because I didn't have any models out there in the public of, of people who are able to fit these different pieces together. and Even when I went to, I, I did my undergrad at a liberal arts school in Texas where I grew up Then I started at HDS at Harvard Divinity School um, and my understanding of what I had to choose was whether I wanted to go into academia uh, as a professor or if I wanted to go the nonprofit route. I was in the MTS program, the same one that Hussein did. and all of my peers were asking that question of, you know, do I go into sort of the nonprofit or government sector uh, and do public work, or do I go into academia and do teaching in the classroom? And I didn't realize at the time that it was a false choice. And the reason I didn't realize that was because I just didn't see anybody doing this work and doing it well. Um, And I think it was in my second year that I started really paying attention to some of the work Uh, that Diana Eck was doing with the Pluralism Project. I I was familiar with it, but I had never seen it as an avenue of work that I could pursue in that way. And the switch for me really happened in sort of envisioning what would it look like if I started thinking about education in a different way, where it was not exclusive to the classroom, but actually outside of it and in the way that you've described. And so as I moved into my PhD program at Columbia, I started working in two spaces that I hadn't really been expecting to uh, when, I, when I joined the program. And that was in civil rights. I joined a civil rights organization, uh, part-time staff primarily focused on representing issues around religious discrimination, uh, which was not my research subject expertise, uh, but something that I had been very interested in. And the other area was media. And religious representation in media spaces, um, and you know, it started out very simply. Around there's a hate crime against a Muslim, and I write a piece about why that's wrong what's going on here, a little bit of analysis, a little bit of storytelling, you know, very simple. And over time, sort of what you described in in your own sort of narrative, over time that broadens out as you get more comfortable, as you become more knowledgeable, as you become better known in those spaces. And just like with anything else, you sort of mature over time. And so I started out essentially blogging with the Huffington Post, um, and then moving up into uh, opinion writing and commenting on TV and radio. And then now to a point where I'm, Actually paid as a columnist, and that's become a source of income for me. Enough of a source of income that um, that it's about a third of what I was making as a tenure-track faculty member. Um, and that's, in terms of time, sort of what you were describing before. Far less input, and it frees me up to do the other things around education that are so important to me. So that's so that's one thing that's happened. Similar thing in the civil rights space started out essentially volunteering, I was volunteering, made that into a formal commitment and at the time I was in grad school um, I wasn't thinking about money in the same way because no one had taught me that I had market value yeah. um, and so I thought of my work as service, joined the staff as part-time, accepted they negotiated salary and I said you know whatever you can afford is fine. and. It was minimum wage, literally. Um, And now, over the last several years, it's become, I've become an important part of the organization, and that salary is half of what I was making as a tenure-track faculty member. And that's 15 hours a week that I put in for that organization. So between the column writing and the uh, civil rights work that I do, which is, I would say, about 20 hours a week, I'm making pretty close to 80% of what I was tenure-track. And then the third, the third thing that sort of developed from those two things is as my as my as the name recognition has developed um, things that I didn't even know existed, or as possibilities for me because I had thought of myself as a scholar and as a sort of public servant, uh, those has, have opened up and they are far more meaningful in terms of what education looks like for me in terms of reach. Um, and they've opened up new avenues of revenue that show even more market value and give me more time to work on the things that matter to me. And those two things are public writing and public speaking. Um, so so one of the things that happened was because, um, because of the public work I was doing, uh, a literary agent reached out to me from one of the top agencies in the country um, and just said i see in your bio you're writing a book can we talk about it i met with her loved her usually for book agents in the, in the trade world it takes a year or so of pursuing on our side to get an ape to land an agent and i was lucky enough that it worked the other way around because of this public work that i had been doing um, and so that has translated into a children's book deal with penguin which was like my dream with you know the elementary ed stuff um, but then also now a, a trade book proposal and the, trade book, the children's book world is less lucrative right it's, it's fractional but in, in the adult nonfiction world I'm actually able to work on things that I care about in terms of my scholarship present them to a much larger audience and connect with folks who I actually want to be reaching in terms of the public work um, and that the the money there is actually if far exceeds what my salary would be. So essentially, what would happen when this book deal goes through, if it goes through, inshallah, um, I could work. I could write for two years without having to take a teaching position. So just these these kinds of things. Oh, and the other piece of that is the public speaking, which is a very similar sort of thing, kind of like what, it, what Hussein was saying, what, what we would be paid as adjunct for a semester of work, uh, we could make in a few days with sort of public speaking in, in these sorts of worlds. And so just the point of this is to say, there are all sorts of things that I hadn't been imagining uh, as possibilities for myself, uh, and without having to compromise Uh, what I care about, what I'm passionate about, uh, without having to compromise my integrity in any way, uh, I'm able to do that work um, and actually still support my family. And so those are real possibilities. And I think what I would encourage folks to do is just sort of explore those opportunities as they come your way. Thank you.
3: Okay, I'll keep this short I'm happy to answer questions about the work that I'm doing but I feel like we're all politically on the same page I, I don't need to tell you it's bad out there um, I think one of the things that I'm really grateful for this panel and for Chrissy's work tireless and on her birthday uh, is the space that this is made to say like there there is life outside the tenure track right There is. It. Hey, Anna. <laughs> um, which I gotta tell you, like a year and a half ago, I'm not sure I thought was possible. Um, I won't give you my whole bio. I will say that I got a B.S. in journalism from Boston University uh, in a while ago. Um, you know what? No, I'm 40. I got it in, tw- in the year 2000, and I'm still here. Right? But it didn't. It wasn't a good fit for me in part because my sophomore year of college, the Monica Lewinsky story broke, and it didn't make me feel good about being a member of the media in the way that I saw available to me. I grew up Catholic, did a lot of religious studies. Well, no, I did a lot of religion at that point. Uh, Was fascinated with it, started sitting in on a bunch of classes, and realized, okay, this is where I think I want to be. So I went to a top tier program, it was great. I landed a local job while I was finishing my dissertation. I got a Mellon postdoc, um, which has ruined me for life because that was two years teaching one class a semester in whatever I wanted at an adorable liberal arts college in Maine founded by abolitionists, which has always been co-educational and integrated. And I'm given to understand that not all universities and colleges work this way, so that's <laughs> been an adjustment. Uh, the thing that I do want to talk to you about was the moment that really, I, I feel like a lot of us have talked about this, but like the breaking point, right? So I did the postdoc. It was real fancy. I got a lot of money. It was really nice. I miss it. Um, and then I got a visiting spot at an R1 university uh, with a top-tier religion program, having graduate students. my first time. Uh, And the understanding was that I was coming in as a VAP, but there was a tenure-track position that was on the table and that I would be strongly considered for that. It was in Race, Religion, and Politics in the year of, to quote Keisha Ali, Someone's Lord 2016. So I'm teaching Race, Religion, and Politics, and I am on what I am assuming is the last year of my job market search, and this was my year. This is a thing that I heard everywhere. So if I said to say that it was not my year, I don't think frankly that 2016 was any of our year, but the combination of having done everything that I had been told would get me a job and I mean you're getting me post-2016 so like I want to acknowledge that this is a lot. I'm not apologizing, I'm just naming it. Um, I felt as though I had been about, I'm going to put it at five to ten percent of myself at this job and realizing that reducing myself that much was not enough to make me not too much for this department. Uh, and then I really had this moment of like, could I have been less myself? I was like, oh, <laughs> oh no. That that doesn't seem right. <laughs> and then you know, there was an election that happened, I feel like, yeah, cool. Um, so it was some, I don't know, it's imploding. Um <laughs> And realizing that I didn't know what what kind of time we had anymore. I love teaching. I am over the moon about it. Uh, And in my ideal universe, I would write things sometimes, maybe. But I would teach classes to students who either did or did not want to be there, talking about why we need to know something about religion to exist in this world, and particularly to be in the United States, right? The election happened, and I felt like we can't play a long game anymore right? Also, emotionally, I think I was just done. And I went from being someone who had been my version of conservative online to just, you know what, we're talking about this now. And this is when I started uh, paying attention to folks like the same machine, like Simran, and realizing that um, people are naming the things that they're seeing, and they're not backing down from that, and that's really important. It's also the point where I caught the attention of senior women scholars who were doing really amazing work online. And I want to say out loud that I don't think any of this work is possible without some sort of, not mentorship, not but real advocacy, right? You have to have people in your corner. You have to have people who are gonna make the introductions. You have to have people who are gonna say, You know what, you can do this in different ways. And I also want to acknowledge out loud that Chrissy has been an incredible advocate for me and also just a hand holder. Like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, I'm gonna die. I'm writing jokes about dogs on the internet. That is true. If you visit Animal Planet, all of the breed descriptions are things that I wrote. Check out the Whippet, it's a lot of Devo jokes. Not kidding. So right, I didn't get the job and I had been living apart from my spouse for a year. And I finally went, you know what, maybe this isn't going to happen for me. We love Maine. Let's move to Maine. Fine. Great. And senior women are paying attention to me and saying, hey, let's maybe set up some meetings. Let's talk. So I'm in this visiting position at Northeastern University. And when I say visiting position, I mean they gave me a library card and an email address. And I don't want to make light of that because the library card made it possible for me to continue to do research. It also introduced me to Liz Buchar, who is my academic bishop. This is, if you're not familiar with Jewish context, this is this is my beloved, my chosen. My, it was meant to be. So Liz was my uh, faculty liaison, officially, which in the scope of this project meant she had to introduce me at one public talk over the course of the semester. Liz met me for coffee in September of that school year and said, okay, what's going on? What's all this? Why? Hmm. And I said, you know what? I don't know. I am feeling this increasing sense of urgency, this sense that... The work that we're doing inside the academy is not enough, and that we don't have time to do it anymore. And this is not to devalue that labor, I think it's important. But also, if the planet's got 20 years, like, what are we doing? So Liz said, Okay, that's great. Well, what else are you thinking about? And I had said, Well, you know, I applied for some media positions. I do have this training in journalism. It turns out journalism doesn't have any jobs either, so that's cool. Uh, But I still feel like it's really important. Like, the communication piece is deeply, deeply important, and the impact is so much broader and so much more immediate, right? So how are we doing this? And listen, it is funny that you said that, because I just got this ACLS loose grant in religion, journalism, and international affairs. Do you want to help? I do want to help. I did want to help. Uh, And the place that this is remarkable is just like, great, I will pay you. I said, yes, please, and thank you. So we did all of this brainstorming around, Okay, what is effective communication among scholars and experts in religion and experts in communication and journalism, right? How does that work? Because all of the scholars that we had talked to have these horror stories about, you know, I tried to talk to a journalist, and then they misquoted me, or they used my research and made a bird-watching guide of Muslim women who cover. Mm. I see you, New York Times, I see you. Uh, and this is just like, it's it's, it's not just a waste of my time, it's actually working against the work that I'm trying to do in the academy. So how do we do this better? So we pulled together a group of journalists who work on religious studies and scholars who work on religious studies, including Dr. Singh. And it was interesting. Uh, one thing that I really noticed because Dr. Singh pointed it out to me, was that while the journalists asked really broad but uh, engaging questions, and then paid really close attention to what was landing and what wasn't with the scholars. The scholars, and these are people that I love, this is no shade, talked amongst themselves and never looked at the audience. It was never a consideration of, is this landing? Am I making sense? It was just, here's the thing that I'm thinking, and we're all gonna talk together in this like, super rapid way that we have, because we all have the shorthand and we're just gonna do this thing, right? So Liz and I came back and said, all right. What can we do about this? We had applied for this loose grant, um, very generous loose grant that Liz swore we were going to get. And I swore she was nuts. And it turns out we did get the funding. The project is sacred rights, public scholarship on religion. And the idea is training scholars how to be more effective communicators about the things that they've trained their entire life to understand. How do you take 20, 30 years of experience, which is invaluable in this political moment, and get something across that is clear why it matters to an American public who thinks it's beyond religion or thinks it knows something about religion when we actively disinform the American public about religion every single day. Uh, so I'll just say two more things about that. This is a 2 pronged approach. One, we are running uh, training sessions for the next three summers on practical skills about how to do this work. So, Kelly is kind of my go-to here, right? So Kelly Baker does amazing work on white supremacy uh, and the inherent Protestant-ness, Protestantness of white supremacy in the United States. Um, it will probably not surprise you to hear that she got a lot of phone calls after the 2016 election for things like, "Hey, we're CNN. We would like you to be on camera in 30 minutes. Can you just do that?" And like, and she did. But I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure none of our doctoral programs included are you camera ready? (laughs) But this is the thing that we're being called on to do, right? Or what is it like to write an op-ed? Not are you authorized to write an op-ed? You're educated. Obviously, you're authorized to write an op-ed. What is it like to do that writing, right? You're in the State Department, or in my case, I had a weird conversation with the CIA. You get five minutes, right? How are you gonna use them? How can you get something across? You can't actually, you get like half a thing across and then they don't listen to you, it's fine. Um, But if you're gonna do briefings with like local government, which uh, Todd Green and I were talking about, that is really where the the change is possible, right? Your local government is accountable to you in a way that the federal government is just not. So the change on the local micro level is really possible if you're gonna sit in, in my case, Susan Collins office, right? and say, here's what I need you to know about Brett Kavanaugh and why this is a religious studies problem in addition to just like a human problem. How do we do that? So this is the training sessions piece. The other piece of this, and I will say we are working with a um, Public Understanding of Religion AAR committee and we're excited to do that. The other piece is setting up media partnerships between scholars and news outlets. So right now we're partnering with Religion News Service and we're really excited about it. And their new editor-in-chief said, great, I want to talk about Hispanic religions. And I said, yes, thank you, God. It's not more white conservative evangelicals. This is really where we're going. Again, this is not to say that white conservative evangelicals aren't worth scholarly scrutiny. I want to suggest in this current political moment that they might be overrepresented in terms of political agency. So working with a news outlet, multiple news outlets eventually, that gets that, that wants to tell the stories about how the American political landscape, and we're talking about international news as well, gets shaped by religion in ways that people don't think about, that it's not immediately registering, uh, is really exciting and possible because Luce gave us money to do it. So it's not just, oh, you know a thing, can you write us an op-ed, right? Or like, Huffington Post, great, come on in. These are funded, basically, fellowships. So if you need to demonstrate to, I don't know, a university where you are, Sharing a laptop. (laughs) I can't even. I'm just. I'm traumatized by that. Uh, That this is work that's worth doing. You can say, look, I got a grant. It's not a huge grant, but it's a couple thousand dollars, right? We're looking at like partnerships of five months long. You you write or consult on four or five different pieces, and the idea here is to shift the public conversation on religion in ways that are directly informed by the scholarship that we've been doing all along, right? Just making that communication route a little bit smoother. The back end of this, which we're still working out, is taking our incredible leadership team, which, again, includes Dr. Singh, also people like Anthea Butler, Judith Weisenfeld, NYSHA Jr., Liz uh, shockman hurd no, Beth, she's a Beth, not a Liz, Beth Shachman-Hurd, and thinking about how to make this legible to the academy. Right? It's not a cute thing that you do. I'm like, you have a blog, that's adorable. No, this is serious scholarship that you're doing and you're putting, again, the weight of your experience and all of your training behind it. Let's take that seriously as scholarship and explain to universities how it might be possible to do that. So looking at the work of folks like Hannah McGregor on Secret Feminist Agenda, what does it look like to peer review a podcast? Right? How do we go about doing that? How do we translate that work, not just to our departments, but to our administrations? or to other institutions. So I'm really excited about this work. Again, I have both cards and buttons. If you wanna to talk to me more about it, I'm happy to do that. But uh, yeah, I, just, I think it is both an incredibly challenging but also really exciting time to be doing this work. One of the things that has given me the most hope in a couple of years where that's been very challenging, is watching how many scholars, how many experts, how many incredibly smart, dedicated, passionate people want to make things better, right? And are willing to put in the work, frankly for free, but let's get them paid, right? To shift not just the academy, but broader conversations, broader understandings of religion. And I'm really excited to be part of that. So thank you all so much for having me. Megan, it
2: for you. Yeah. You and Liz had a conversation on the. Different- intellectual and public Oh, you want to do that? Okay, Would we can do, do that. Question? Yeah, sure.
3: So we actually had that conversation because Andrew Mark Henry, who is another uh, scholar who is doing some really great work coming out of BU and was just hired by the Atlantic, so we're psyched about that. Uh, interviewed me for a podcast, and I should remember which one it was, and I don't, and I'm sorry. I will look it up. But so this was his question because I guess uh, Andrew had been noodling about all right, public intellectuals versus public scholarship, public scholars. What is it? So, uh, and he asked, and I said, you know, for me your mileage may vary, but for me, a public intellectual is somebody who develops a following, a presence around they themselves, right? It is deeply important to be a Richard Dawkins in public. This is about what I know, right? Public scholarship for me is not about the people doing it. Uh, This is not, again, to say that we don't value your labor. Obviously, we do, but the point isn't to be the guy, right? The point is to shift public conversations on religion, to increase public knowledge about religion, not because it necessarily undoes intolerance, it doesn't, but because we have to start somewhere. And because, again, people often know less than nothing about religion. So for me, again, the distinction is between, I don't want to say word cult, I'm the program unit director in New Religious Movements, and we're like really trying to get that stuff. But there is a cult of personality around public intellectuals. And I also think, importantly, that that keeps a lot of smart, good people from wanting to do this work because they don't want to make it about themselves, right? Like, I don't need 25,000 Twitter followers. I just want people to be, like, smarter about minority religions. So focusing on the scholarship rather than on the individual in that conversation is really where we're hoping to see this go. Thanks
7: for that.
0: Hi again, I'm a girl who reads from paper, sorry about that. Um, and just a point of order before I get to um, content, um, we actually got some desk microphones to be able to record the second part of the conversation and after I stop, we're gonna take just a couple of minutes to see if it's feasible to set up, five minutes tops, if it's not, we're abandoning the whole thing, but we're gonna give it a whirl, so, is that all right? Great. Okay, great. So, um, yoga. yoga yoga? Well, if you want to lead it, then yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah, bodies, man. We're embodied. (laughs) Um, Okay. Um, My name is Lynn Gerber. Um, I I I thought I was going to get away with just moderating this panel, but then I was it was suggested to me that I shouldn't. So um, I'm going to just give a little bit of my biography and some things that I think are important in the spirit of naming some things that are sometimes difficult to name. Um, I am a scholar of American religion, sexuality, and the body. Um, I graduated with a PhD in Ethics and Social Theory from the Graduate Theological Union in 2009, which as we all know was a really great moment to do that. Really good timing on my part. <laughs> and Since then, until recently, I've managed to keep my foot in the academic door at the University of California Berkeley and at Harvard Divinity School, in a mixture of teaching and research positions. Unlike my colleagues here, I'm a person who got into this field more for the research than the teaching, Um, and teaching has never been the center part of why I have wanted to do this work. Working with graduate students and other people with scholarly ambitions is something that I'm very interested in, but but teaching has not been the heart of my concern. For the last eight years, I've been working on what can no longer responsibly be called a new project (laughs) on religion and the emergence of HIV and AIDS in the 1980s in San Francisco. And I'm trying to tell this story by telling the story of one church, the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco, which is a gay and lesbian congregation that was located in the Castro, which was ground zero of that epidemic when it first emerged, and at the end of the last academic year, I decided it was time to consciously uncouple with, my, um, with the academic affiliations that I had um, sort of strung along and that had strung me along. And there was mutual stringing and mutual unstringing. And um, I think I was the only one consciously uncoupling because I don't think they gave two shits, but I consciously uncoupled and uncoupled I am. Um, and I decided it was time to focus solely on finishing this project. Um, For the previous three years, I had been splitting my time between Cambridge and San Francisco and I felt like the continual cross-country travel was a real barrier to giving the book the kind of persistent focus I felt it needed, not to mention my partner who, it it seems, also enjoys persistent focus. (laughs) And I decided to let go of the email address, the library card, and the name badge with an institution and just finish the damn book. And I find myself feeling both closer to the work and farther from the profession than I had before, an interesting paradox that this panel has given me the opportunity to articulate. So before I went back to graduate school when I was in my early 30s, I had another career in social movement philanthropy. And in that career, I helped co-found an organization called Resource Generation that supports young people with earned and inherited wealth, use their money and their economic and social privilege for social justice. And in that work, I had become accustomed to telling my own story about losing my father at a young age and inheriting wealth as a result, wealth that gave me a tremendous amount of options, including the option to abandon that work and go to graduate school. I thought that going to graduate school would, among other things, give me a reprieve from having to talk about that personal area of my life so publicly. But i found that traversing the massive shifts in academia and precarity, contingency and confusion make it more important for me to name that as part of my own experience and how I've navigated life off the tenure track. Not because I'm proud of the fact that that is how I've navigated it, but I am not ashamed of it either. But I do it in part because I can see that my status and my position is confusing for graduate students, aspiring graduate students, and even my age peers and younger people who are trying to figure this thing out. And it can look like I know something or some kind of secret to contingency survival, which means that there is some secret to it, which means that they could figure out that secret and they could use it. And I don't want to participate in, obf- in obfuscating the real degree to which that secret, in mine and many other cases, is being on the quote-unquote winning side of a whole lot of economic and social inequality. That, like many things about navigating the, con- the contingency path, um, is largely out of people's control and um, discouraging or complicated as a conversation that might be, I don't want to give anybody the sense that there's more control than there is, and I don't want whatever position I have to forward that illusion. And I also do so because I think it's important for all of us in positions like mine to be honest about the resources we bring to bear in sustaining contingent life and to use them to think about solidarity not just between tenure and contingent faculty but within a community of contingent academics who are positioned very differently in relationship to that contingency. For example, I think about the ways that people in my position are able to take jobs that pay really, really shitty and perpetuate systems that make academic jobs pay really shittily. I don't have an answer to that, but it's something that I think I'm not the only person who experiences, and I think that we need to think mindfully about it. Many of us teach about recognizing and working with privilege and being clear about my own financial privilege is one way I try to work with mine, even even as I stand in a precarious position in relation to my chosen profession. So right now I'm writing a book, I'm trying on what it feels like to think about myself as a writer and a truly independent scholar. There's a lot about not being tied to the tenure track that I found immensely beneficial for my work, especially the current project that I'm working on. It's gotten me out of the time demands regarding publication that would make the kind of time I'm taking with this project all but impossible. Some might say for better, some might say for worse, but there you have it. It allows me to do the project at the level of depth that I think it calls for, and I believe the project will benefit. It also allows me to pursue a much wider range of products for that research. I'm working on a book about the congregation and considering a second on AIDS and religion in the Bay Area. But the project itself is based on an audio archive of materials and it's given me the opportunity to think seriously about audio documentary and the podcast as a form in which to express scholarship and to present scholarly work, which is something I think I would be pressured to not consider in as much depth as I am now. And in addition to the book and the podcast, it's giving me a chance to think about archiving and archiving for the public good. I'm developing an archive of oral histories related to this conversation, ones that I may or may not be able to use in my actual research. Um, but it's become a central part of my work in thinking about how I not only write the story that I can write but leave options for future scholars who are interested in this topic. I'm not at all convinced I would be supported in pursuing all three kinds of research products in a tenured position, and I truly don't know how I would have the time. I'm not teaching right now, and I don't have plans to, Um, and I know the questions about creativity within constraint, and increasingly, the world of possibilities for scholars are live ones, and I'm very glad to be in a conversation with people who have navigated it so ably, and I look forward to what our conversation will bring together, thanks.
7: Yeah.
6: <laughs> and I told them this is going to be ugly, but fast. So we're just going to set it up right here.
4: Let's see. Could you? Yep. Could you run? Yeah. Maybe two mics there and one mic here for me.
6: Uh, let's do two on that side and one on this side. Just, just because they were sitting further apart on this side. So. So then we'll come out of
1: the mixer.
4: I think we'll make it work. (laughs) Uh,
6: Just into... uh
4: Let's uh, just, just do two, three, four. Let's put it on this side.
1: Yeah, let's put this on this side. Love it. And then I'll put the wrong name somewhere. Love it. Yeah. Do I have the output hooked up yet? No.
0: Hey, 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 hey.
4: There's our levels. Yep. And one, two, three. One, two,
2: three. One, two, three. Pa, 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 ba, ba, ba. Okay. Cool. Hey, hey.
6: Sorry, I meant to stop by. No, no, you were perfect because I forgot the most critical step. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for that.
0: (laughs) I am giving the official hey, hey, one, two, one, two, which means please reconvene and thank you, sound folks, for getting this done and getting it done so quickly. Um, we're gonna start the discussion part of our conversation with microphones for everyone.
2: So, um, yeah. We lost Simran. Oh no! I promised
0: him I'd text him when we were coming back. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Yeah, text him. So. Um, I guess babies. We have just a little bit over an hour left for our conversation. Um, I just want to check with my panelists. Do you think it makes sense for us to talk amongst ourselves or should we just open the floor now? Let's just open the floor. Yeah, I think that we should do that. So um, open the floor for conversation. If you could speak into the microphone for recording purposes, that would be awesome. And uh, you know how it works. We line, you say things, we say things back. Hmm. Like that.
5: I'm Chrissy, I think most of you know me, Um, but I'm the chair of the Applied Religious Studies Committee. Thanks everybody for being here today. Um, So I'm sort of, I was telling Hussein during the break that I feel like the theme of my AAR this year is the ways in which many of us um, are sort of driven by this idea of education as a public good to move into non-traditional spaces with our scholarship and with our energies. Um, But I was particularly struck on this panel by the ways in which um, many of you are very focused on teaching different communities that a traditional university teaching career wouldn't necessarily reach. So uh, non-traditional students who wouldn't have access to education unless there were online courses and how you really take joy from that. And Hussein and these awesome museum exhibits that he's been sending to places like Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is just awesome. Um, And Megan talking about teaching faculty faculty have things to learn. I'm going to teach them to talk to people. Which is awesome, and that, you know, so you have sort of turned your focus to teaching them in addition to teaching traditional students. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, and was that conscious, was that intentional, and how do you find that um, the experience of teaching those different audiences differs from what we were thrown into the deep end to do as grad students, because let's face it, we aren't really trained to teach, are we? and how and how is it you know so what's the same and what's different
2: i want to just jump in with that chris because i think my story will probably be a little bit different than everybody else's in that my dissertation advisor was actually very keen on pedagogical training when i was in grad school which i know is generally not the norm um, and so it was insistent, like if i was going to teach for them, i had to go to the teaching and learning center and do their introductory course be evaluated constantly by them like that was part of our Training and that sort of stuck with me, and I think that's part of the reason that I shifted into being an educator. Right, All of this is informed by ongoing scholarship, but thinking about different audiences, right? So the, an undergraduate is different than a graduate student, is different than an AAR panel. And so as long as you understand multiple audiences, to work with a children's museum is not that big a stretch. You're just like, well, here's the same information. What's, what is the thing that is age appropriate or audience appropriate for me to think about? You only know that when you're de- in deep in the scholarship. You don't know it by reading the Wikipedia page. right? And so that is, I think, if I understood your question, I think really uh, what was so very helpful to me was engaging with that pedagogy as part of my graduate school training and to think about audience stratification um, or audience separation and then figuring out how do we speak to different audiences.
3: Um, hmm. I had a similar and yet different experience. So UNC, go Heels, uh, teaches more than just about any other graduate program in religion. Uh, it's it's one of the things that sets us apart and also what's supposed to make us so very marketable. Uh-huh. Um, <coughs> but we pride ourselves on how much we teach and then we don't teach the graduate students how to teach. There's no requirement that you're going to interact with the Center for Teaching and Learning or Faculty Excellence, I think it is now. Um, Those resources are available, but if you don't have uh, any sort of mentorship toward those resources, uh, then you don't get them, right? So I'm realizing an origin story. I uh, did a Center for Faculty Excellence uh, future faculty training thing after I taught my first class. Uh, And I interacted with um, folks from the English department who were trained to teach, and were saying things like, what do you mean that you don't have some sort of graduate support for learning how to teach? They had, I know, it's just distracting. Um, So the English department had set up for a decade at least uh, a graduate student-run, organized, supervised teaching committee. Oh hey, what if what if we did that? So I, I worked with the English uh, department. I worked with some really fabulous people: Elise Morgenstein first, Kathleen Humphrey, Jenna Tietzman, oh, oh, sorry, she's up Montgomery now. Uh, and we put together a graduate student committee on teaching, where we were really just coming together and saying, what are the things that are working for us, what aren't working for us, how do we put together assignments? How do you put together a syllabus? What does a lesson plan look like? Again, I have a lot of really fantastic things to say about the faculty who were at UNC while I was there. My first solo class at UNC was the history of Christianity. You're probably not familiar with my scholarship, so you don't know how funny that is. No one looked at my syllabus. I could who knows what I'm teaching the children, right? (laughs) So having other graduate students to collaborate with uh, really helped shape that. And that's, I mean, that's really how I'm seeing what Sacred Rights is doing as well, where it's less, oh, Liz and I are great, I mean, Liz and I are great. We're a good time, come play with us. But the thing that's been remarkable about this project for me is bringing together all of these different areas of expertise and these different skill sets. And also, again, all of these different modes of commitment to. Just making people smarter about religion as a community of both accountability and support, right? This is a conversation I feel like I've been having a lot at AAR this year, um, but I'm, I'm excited to see how many different spaces it's, it's come up. This idea that we can be responsible to each other, accountable to each other, and support each other in this work. Um, so I, I feel like it's a less, what we're going for in an ideal situation is less a top-down, we teach you, and more like, let's come together and figure out what our resources are, right? So the summer trainings involve things like asking the folks who are going to participate, well, what do you have to share? How do you help boost our skill set, right? How can you teach us to do this better? And also bringing in folks from other disciplines who are doing this work in really smart ways, and religious studies, like many academic disciplines, is such a silo that we just don't have access to that, mm-hmm. right? So. The only reason I know about Hannah McGregor's work is because she also did a podcast on Harry Potter, and that is how I roll. Right? But she's doing all of this amazing work around decolonizing Canadian literature and thinking about public scholarship as something that really elevates the work that it's possible to do in and beyond the academy. And that's really exciting. So using, again, very generous loose funding to be able to pull on all of those resources and build broader networks of accountability and responsibility and support is just yeah, it feels like a real gift.
6: Sure, yeah, I mean, I, the thing I miss most about the, the tenure track job is the teaching. I, I found that to be actually more, um, more, more rewarding than any of the other uh, things that I do, uh, the different sort of buckets that I hold. Uh, and the reason for that is I was teaching Islamic studies in Texas um, in 2016. So <laughs> uh, students were coming in, uh, not having any exposure to um, the study of religion, um, and the only things they knew about Islam were what they heard on TV. And so uh, it was, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some satisfaction that comes out of writing an op-ed and knowing people read your ideas. Um, it's very different to spend a semester with a group of young people and to help open their minds. You know these were well-intentioned kids. They weren't malicious, but they harbored all these sorts of implicit biases because of the messaging they received. Um, and so, I loved I love teaching, um, and I've always loved teaching. I think one of the lessons. So so nobody trained me how to teach either. In our in our program, it was you you if you care you care and if you don't you don't. Um, and I happen to care, and I happen to have excellent pedagogues as models who I TA'd for. So Jack Hawley in South Asian studies, Peter on in Islamic studies, just like incredible pedagogues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I taught with uh, pedagogues who didn't care. Mm-hmm. and um, And I learned from that as well. And in some ways that benefited me more than watching the ones who I liked because I learned very quickly what not to do. And the biggest lesson I took away from those experiences and what's really shaped my teaching, and, I, and I, don't, I don't think this is how we think as a, as a group, is that teaching is a service, and teaching requires humility, and teaching is not about us, it's about our students. And, and the worst pedagogues were the ones who thought it was about them, mm-hmm. uh, and the best pedagogues were the ones who thought it was about their students. And, and that was, you know, my graduate advisors were people who really focused on teaching and training us and mentoring us because they cared, and not actually because it was their job. And so that, to me, has been very formative in my philosophy. It has nothing to do with training. It has more to do with attitude, I think, right? And like how we think about our work. Um, And it sounds like what you were describing about what you do on your online teaching. That sounds. I mean, you don't even sounds like you don't even meet the students, but you care about them, right? It's very interesting to hear that.
4: Yeah. um, So, so there was not a whole lot of training in grad school for teaching, and I honestly did not want to teach. always been the quietest person in any room um, so that's why this is a perfect job for me so uh, I put a lot of effort into uh, TAing into learning how to be a good 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 TA and have a presence in the classroom and um, you know I, I started looking for, for jobs after grad school and kind of went through a phase where I stopped looking for jobs and I actually went back to school used some credits that I got from teaching um, uh, to retrain a little bit Um, And the job that I have at Perimeter College, which is now part of GSU, uh, was the last job application I put in. And I said, I'm going to apply for this job because it's right up my alley, Uh, it's online, Um, but I'm going to start looking for other things. And I I got this job, (laughs) (laughs) and I really like it. Um, I put a lot of work into my classes. Uh, But you're you're talking about, uh, your question was about the issue of a public good. Perimeter College is a community college, and they have in their mission statement that they have an access mission, so students from all educational backgrounds can take their classes, and that means a lot of students don't don't have a lot of background preparing them for for higher education. Um, So I had to consciously think about trying to meet a range of educational backgrounds and needs, and uh, think very consciously about my online materials um, more so than I have had at other schools. Um, and then I, I kind of went back and looked at the other places where I've taught. Uh, I'd already been teaching at UMUC for a few years and they have a lot of military contracts. And I'm like, well, there's a different kind of access there. Like I, I, I'm so accustomed already to working with students who are deployed and often they don't have internet access. Um, or, or can't do like, a, like an observation project for various reasons. Um, so that, that's kind of where that came from, this, this, this idea that um, you kind of have to meet students where they are um, mm-hmm. and provide them the best education you can uh, with whatever means you have.
3: Yeah, I actually really love that. Jean Gallagher did, does this sound okay? Yeah. Okay. Jean Gallagher did this great essay a while back about the intro class and this was a thing that I thought about a lot while I was at Bates um, because I had been brought in uh, with this Mellon Postdoc to think about scaffolding the religion major, right? It's a small liberal arts college. People kind of teach all over the place. And there was no kind of clear track on what the training for a religious studies major would be at Bates. So we were thinking about intro classes and looking at Jean's essays about what it is to do an intro class and the problem of like a world religions class. And it's there's so many problems with a world religions class, but students sign up for it, right? And then often, I think, folks who are excited about teaching religion really want some basics in place. But no, first-year undergrad wants to take a theories and methods class and religious, like, that's not fun. So, I mean, my solution was to teach a religion in monsters class, and I'm happy to talk about that in other whatever. But uh, Jean's line is, you don't teach the students you wish you had, you teach the students you have, right? And it, it sounds like a lo- all of us have rethought who our audience is, who the students are, and how we reach them, but it's still very much, I think, coming from, how, where and how we learn to teach once we eventually learn how yeah.
2: to do that. And I just want to chime in. So for those of you who don't know Jean Gallagher, I met Jean uh, about a year and a half ago through the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning. Uh, if you're not familiar and you're, especially if your school doesn't have a teaching center, the faculty teaching center, the Wabash Center really engages us as scholars of religion on the scholarship of teaching and learning. Um, this is again where I met Jean and, mm-hmm. and, and got introduced to some of the scholarship. But there's a whole, you know, Kwok is there. Um, as well, running some of these programs. A whole bunch of people. Highly, highly recommend it um, uh, if you are interested. And at least for me, thinking about my audiences and how to reach my audiences makes my scholarship better. Yes. Because then I know the difference between an introductory book versus Mm -hmm. the um, nobody will read this but me and some (laughs) descendant who finds this in a trunk in the (laughs) attic at some point. It's like, what were they thinking about? Uh, Why was great granddad so stupid? So, you know, there was, you know, uh, but thinking about that audience.
3: Yeah. Well, and I also, because again, I think naming is important, I deeply value the resources that Wabash makes available. And I also want to say out loud that until recently, they had no resources for contingent faculty. I think this is a space where when you know better, you do better. And I see Wabash trying to do better and I appreciate it, but that that's a relatively recent phenomenon. And I think largely comes out of pressure put on them as an institution by folks who are doing the hard work of raising contingency visibility. Dr. White?
1: <laughs> or sorry, that's a, is it that's White a good Meno? point to ask a question about <laughs> academic resource hoarding and how to um, I mean the interesting thing about being <coughs> off a tenure track position is and I, I'm on I've been in several long-term visiting positions so there's the some of the benefits of having a full-time faculty position um, while off the track of expectations yeah. that drive a lot of other people's careers. Um, and Mike, my... so I have access to a lot of resources. I'm interested in sort of how you all can what advice or what anecdotes you have about um, finding access to various kinds of resources and especially or making access or hacking out on you know whatever yeah, yeah, metaphors yeah, yeah. you want to use. Um, and especially thinking about those resources as important for the public good and for the kind of um, voices and and scholarship that you all are doing and want to do right. So what are those access points and what are some of the ways to open more of those access points.
2: So I'm a little bit spoiled being in New York. I feel like I'm going first all the time I thought that was Matthew's job. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I, I feel spoiled a little bit being in New York. The New York Public Library System is oh, yes. fantastic. And it's linked up to Princeton Columbia's library system, um, which means I can pretty much get anything I want whenever I want it. Um, and I recognize uh, also being a Columbia alum, I have alumni access to the library uh, gratis, which lifetime, which is also kind of awesome. Um, so I'm kind of spoiled that way. Um, but uh, but I am conscious of it. I, just as a tangent, Heather, you know, creative projects, I just want to go that way. You know, I love the fact that when I decided not that there's not a tenure track job out there, the amount of writing on stuff that I want to write about mm-hmm. is, you know, like, I, you know, I'm writing a chapter on Muslims and comics. I have a co-authored volume on Muslims and comics coming out. The next one's on Islam and popular culture, then mm-hmm. one on Islam in America. You know, I have just stuff, American-Muslim science fiction books, like, it's it's just so much fun to like, not have to worry about writing <laughs> for somebody else and be like, no, this is what I'm interested in now, this is what I'm going to learn about and yeah. write that, so.
3: I have to say I deeply appreciate the the recognition that these weirdo positions that we find ourselves in, because, again, I think we, we've been on similar tracks for a long time here, um, it's, it's scary being contingent, and at the same time, having the resources of a really good college or university at your disposal, while no one cares when or if you publish, has done some really nice things for my writing, the writing part of my CV, right? Um, I realized I didn't name this at the beginning of the panel, and I probably should. I think I'm the only person at the table that is currently full-time at a university. So I am a full-time, non-tenure-track faculty member at Northeastern at a time when we're trying to unionize full-time, non-tenure-track Faculty members, and we're just told by the university that we can't because we're managers. So that's happening. Um, yeah, we're managers. I don't know who I ma- manager. Not myself, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> not myself or others. I manage Liz, but I, that's so. So
2: you're the man, is basically. I, what, so I am the man. <laughs> you are the man.
3: Speaking. The man is speaking. <laughs> <laughs> But, so, I want to come back, I feel like this is the one thing that I'm going to say today, so I'll just go say it over and over again. I feel like this is a place where we think about communities of accountability and support, right? So, one of the places where I've really tried to use my very excellent Northeastern Library card is for folks who, either at universities who don't have those systems, or I'm seeing more, more and more calls for, like, activists out in the field saying, I really want access to this, but I can't pay $35 for these 12 pages. I'm realizing that this is probably not 100 percent legal. And also I have decided I'm not on the tenure track, and I am really just accountable to Luc, Liz and Northeastern kind of, uh, that the work that's being done on the ground, and frankly, the production of knowledge that is, regardless of whether're you in a public or a private college, in some way funded by the public, belongs to, oh my God, I've got, this is me now it belongs to the people, right? Mm-hmm. Why should they not have access to that? So using my positions of library privilege, I've, this is a place where I really try to think about like how can I make this available to folks? Or, and I I think we probably all do this in in some way, if you wind up in a space where you have extra funding to bring people in to talk about their, their research and can get them access to other scholars, this is again a place where even those of us who are in these weird tangential positions can really use what social capital we have to the rising tide that raises all ships, right? It got really squishy. This is your phone. Any like contact squish.
4: I can I can just say that teaching at four places, I have a lot of options. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the places I I, I teach at is, is State Univers- is Empire State College, which is part of the SUNY system, and it's a great library system. I also want to add that like over the years, I've sometimes used um, some of the positions I have. Let me take classes in the SUNY system or at other colleges. Um, That's, I've always found that really useful in terms of training and updating my CV and also getting library access.
6: (laughs) Yeah, just to sort of, thank you. Um, To echo what Megan said, but to say it in actually quite a different way uh, and and to point something out. Yesterday I was on a panel around um, responding to a paper in Islamic studies, Islamic legal studies, about complicit scholarship and addressing white supremacy and patriarchy uh, in the field. And it was a historiography, a fantastic paper. Um, and the thing I noticed, it was in the big ballroom downstairs uh, in the Four Seasons where the plenaries happened, um, and there were no Muslim men in the room. There were no white men, no Islamic studies men in the room. Um, and, and the point is, If we look around this room right now right we don't have the folks who are tenure track in the audience we have contingent faculty and and that would be the case because if you have the privilege then you have a blind spot and you're not paying attention to these conversations so like we're the ones here thinking about what this support looks like but what we need is those in positions of power to support us right they need to show their solidarity but somehow we need to create an awareness about their blind spots in a way that's not confrontational or attacking, uh, but in a way that shows like, hey, we could use your support, and here's a very simple thing you could do. When I was in the tenure track position, I was made aware of some of these things I had never thought of uh, because I had come straight out of grad school, I, was, I had university library access, um, and all of a sudden my friends would email me from grad school and say, hey, I can't, I can't access this book or this article. Can you help me out? And so that's, that, for me, was creating awareness about one of my blind spots. And so to think about this as you know, where are your relationships with folks where you can create some sort of awareness so that then you can create some sort of solidarity, so that then we can create some sort of change, right? I think that's how these things happen. Um, and I think, yeah, there's, there's some initiation on our parts, but then there's some accountability that we need to have from them as well. Yeah.
3: I, wanna, I want to echo and amplify that. Uh, and also say again that I and I think a lot of us have, have been lucky enough to have senior folks who do take these issues seriously and I also want to say again that they tend to be women and queer people and black women and women and <laughs> black women and queer women um, and it means that the the work of the senior scholars who are supporting contingent faculty and, and I want to say again that there are a lot of different kinds of academic precarity right there are, it is something very interesting to be teaching Islam, say, at a southern state college. Uh, and I have a lot of friends in this position. That's a different kind of precarity. And it, it influences yeah, the kind of space that we're able to occupy. So the one I am hearing this, but given that we all are the ones in the room, the, the thing that I found most useful for me is just not pulling punches about what we're going through. Right? This isn't to say that we all need to write quitlet. I'm not, that can be very cathartic. I still have one that I'm thinking about publishing. It's a little, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of animated GIFs in it because this is my truth. But being loud about this is happening, this is messed up. Again, I cannot get over (gasps) Kelly Baker's piece where she talks about graduate students as academic waste, Mm -hmm. right? The system flushed us because that's what it's designed to do, I think is one of the only things that we can do to hold the system accountable, right? That and support each other right? If we have these resources, let's make them available to each other. Let's say, I see you. I know this is hard. There are spaces where survival beyond the tenure track is possible. And not just survival, frankly, I think flourishing, right? It's hard and it's scary, but also I think it has a, a chance to shift really big, broad conversations in ways that just kind of hunkering down in what is frankly an unethical labor system never could. do you want to get in? I feel like you're far from that. Oh, that's
0: I just only want to actually echo what Megan was saying about using our positions to sort of spread um, opportunity for other folks. And I just want, in terms of anecdote, when I was at UC Berkeley, I worked for a center that um, was not funded well. Nobody cared what happened there, um, which was, you know, a girl has to. You know, grapple with her ego under those circumstances, but there's, but the power that I found in that invisibility was that it gave me the opportunity to invite anybody that I wanted to, to get a CD line from UC Berkeley, which is not nothing, and I think that was helpful to a number of people, particularly in my experience, folks who were getting their degrees in seminaries whose sort of academic bona fides were questioned having that, so I, you know, there's a power in the invisibility too at times that I also think that we can be mindful of and um, cultivate um, in certain moments. Yeah.
7: Yeah, I just wanted to thank you all. I think this is these are really important conversations to have. And I was listening to what Megan was saying about, you know, academic waste and, of course, you know, we've all read, you know, kind of the Quitlet, and, I mean, we've all kind of been in and seen these contingent positions that are really at the mercy of those with academic power. So I, I just kind of put this out there as, you know, kind of a question maybe for all of us, especially those of us who are on the Applied Religious Studies Committee. And it's kind of like so... For those of us who are in full-time positions and, in fact, might be directing Ph.D. programs, ha- ethically, how do we limit complicity in these structures, um, in, the, in the damaging structures, and you know help to participate in ethical paths forward? I'm going to grab the microphone on this one.
3: Um, I really grappled with this. Uh, it's on my CV, I'm not gonna, whatever. I was at Syracuse 2016 and 2017. It was the first time I ever worked with graduate students. The market is terrible. Syracuse students in particular have had a really hard time finding placement. Um, and there were folks uh, at the university who very much did not want me to talk to the graduate students about what it was like to be on the job market, which seemed nuts to me, given that the year that I was hired at Syracuse, I was rejected for 50 jobs. Five zero, right? I'm qualified to do this job. I like to think I'm good at it, and it's still the amount of rejection that you encounter is just staggering. So I think, frankly, and maybe somebody, maybe there are other ways, but for me, the only ethical way I see to have graduate students at this point is to develop really robust networks of support and opportunities for them to do something that is not the tenure track. You need to displace the tenure track as even possible at this point, because frankly, statistically, it is not. It is not possible. So what can you do with a PhD in religion? Until you can answer that question, you cannot have grad students ethically. You cannot. If you can build this, and again, it's not the responsibility of religious studies departments to know those answers. It is the responsibility of religious studies departments to find those answers.
2: So I do slightly disagree with Megan. Um, I think the ethical approach is to burn the system down, salt the earth, start again someplace else. Um, failing that, we stop taking graduate students. I, I, I Honestly, I think, I, I think we seriously have to consider. We know the reason we take so many graduate students is because so many other faculty don't want to grade. Right At the end of the day, this is cheap grading labor, which is why I'm all for graduate student unions, because when you start paying them money, you stop taking so many of them. Mm. Um, See adjuncts. Um, Mm -hmm. Then failing that, because there's a real lack of political will to do anything other than pay lip service to resistance to Trump. I'm looking at you, Columbia, who wants to smash unions with the Trump administration. then I will come and agree with Megan, which is, and Chrissy, which is, let's stop doing this and uh, let's, let's start having these conversations earlier and once we start having these conversations, let's actually have practical relevance training in this. Like, what can you do with religious studies? Um, and ultimately, again, it's good scholarship. Why are you doing what you do should be a fundamental question, even if we are on a tenure track job, because if we're not asking that question, basically it's intellectual onanism. Can I use that word? It's a good biblical word, it's a religious studies word. It's it's already out there. Right? Okay, there we go. So I just
5: want to say quickly into the microphone A, I want to reiterate what I said when I was sitting, which is that we need to have the conversation Megan is talking about when students are undergraduates, not just when they're already in graduate school. You know, if you're going to grad school, don't assume you're going to be a professor. Second, I disagree with you, Hussein. What we need to do is shift the conversation and talk about all of the ways that our graduate training is valuable in the world not just because it will get us another job, right? You know, I think a lot of the focus is, oh, the job market is terrible, you're not gonna be a professor. What else can you do as your plan B? This was not my plan B, right? This was my plan A because other job opportunities not only looked like a better lifestyle for me, but also gave me different opportunities to educate and support education in different ways, which is what I hear all of you saying that you do. Right. So, I mean, yes, the system probably needs, I don't know if I want to salt the earth. But Just to make it's, sure. we it's need not <laughs> the earth's fault <laughs> But I don't, I, I, need I,
2: reference. give me my idiot.
5: You know, I don't want us to stop taking graduate students because graduate education is valuable, but we need to talk about how it is valuable outside of the academy. We are needed outside of the academy to educate people in different ways, in different modes, in different media. Because we need people in the State Department who understand religion.
2: See, Todd Green. I don't think we actually disagree, though, Chrissy, because what I say, it's the system. It's not the fact that we don't need graduate education. This is what I tell my undergraduates, because I do have this conversation with them, is I absolutely hated the PhD process, and I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it for anything because of all the skills and other opportunities it's given me. Absolutely agree with you 100%. At the same time, the system, the way it's structured now is so deeply exploitive, I don't know if it's worth salvaging, right? That we can still say we need the graduate education and also recognize that it's because of the way we've exploited graduate labor that we're now exploiting faculty labor, right? Because what's an adjunct but an underpaid graduate student, right? That's essentially what they're treating us as. Without
0: health insurance. Without health insurance.
6: Hi, my name's Travis. Um, My question is, uh, a follow-up, several of you talked about um, mentorship as critical in your roles in transitioning out of um, the sort of single-minded obsession with tenure-track as the only viable career option. Um, Can you say just a little bit more about networks of mentors, or maybe highlight a particular mentor
7: that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet, and how that helped you kind of think more creatively about your possibilities?
3: Twitter. I mean, it's, 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 it, it, I'm gonna do this again. Uh, I think about the work that I do in and outside the academy much in the same way that Alaska 5000 thinks about drag. It is a very serious joke. Um, so Twitter is a nonsense flaming toilet of some of the best work on religion that is happening right now. Um, over and above that, the folks who do it well, and I'm thinking here of people like Anthea Butler, Judith Weisenfeld, Keisha Ali, newly uh, Liz Bucher, because I got her on there. That's not fair. Her editor got her on there. I just taught her how to use it. Um, are folks that not only communicate clearly with the public about why their research is important, but actually actively look for scholars who are getting started in this, trying to do this work, and help boost their profile, right? Who go out of their way to make meetings happen because they like what you're doing in these public spaces. So when I say that 2016 broke me and I started just being all of this on Twitter, this is when those folks knew to find me, right? So again, I think being really candid about what you're going through in a space where there are folks who are willing, incredibly generously given the seniority of their scholarship, the packedness of their schedules, and just having been in the academy for however many decades doing this work alone, um, it, it's, you know, it's sending up a flag and saying, I'm here, I'm, I want to do this work with you. How do I do this? And I didn't even know that, that that's what I was doing at the time. It is due to the generosity of these senior scholars, women, senior scholars, mostly women of color, senior scholars, mostly black women, senior scholars, uh, who are looking for folks to be in solidarity, but don't come in expecting that you're going to know how to do the work, right? So again, I I will never, ever tell anybody that they should be on Twitter. It is a bad, bad place that is also my favorite thing on the internet. Um, But it does make networks possible in a way that I just don't see anywhere else.
2: I've had a slightly different experience with Twitter. Generally, I agree, I mean, I think that-, that well,
3: As a brown man on Twitter, you had a different experience? <laughs> yeah, <me>. absolutely, <laughs> amazing, different? shocking, right? What? Who knew? Who
2: would've thought? Um, generally, I agree with Megan. I, I think it's really, some really smart conversations no, we burned are Twitter to the that ground.
3: That it's salty, no. It's <laughs> salty, right, <laughs> it's salty earth again, right. Burn it! <laughs> uh, this is
2: Carthage. Um, there are some really smart conversations going on out there. I think I've I've really learned a lot through Twitter, but my mentorship didn't happen Virtually. Uh, My my mentorship happened uh, personally. And yes, some of the people who I found most insightful on Twitter are women, are queer women, are black women, are women of color across the board. My mentorship actually, uh, a lot of the people who helped me think through the academic side of what I was trying to do were actually men. Here I want to shout specifically Edward Curtis and Omid Safi. Mm. Um, who were really there to listen to me think through some of these issues. Um, Keisha's been extremely valuable in thinking through, for me, how to make my research more complex and be more thoughtful Mm -hmm. on it, right? But again, if I were in a traditional tenure track job, I think I would have a harder time with what Keisha has to teach because there's so much other pressure out there. It's because I have that freedom, as you pointed out, that I can listen to Keisha and really think through my own scholarship. But in terms of the transition, and here I sit, and I am, um, you know, that, that study of religion and theology divide, I sit in both worlds. I walk both. I'm a committed Muslim who works within my community as an educator. And it was people who knew me in that capacity, other people who were doing PhDs in my community who sat with me and listened to me and said, you know, I, I think the Christian term is discernment, is that right? Where you figure out who you are, right? Who helped me go through that process. Oh, that's the come to Jesus moment. The cup com- okay, yeah, except, no. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> Again, committed Muslim. Um, I mean, I don't recommend it. I'm just saying, I, mean, I, I just call it. Yes. No. Uh, <laughs> um, you know what, I just, you know, when you told me to shut up because you're the man was speaking, I just said, fuck the man. So I just wanna As, put that out there now. Say like, it now. Just, I'm saying it now, fuck the man. Okay, go. so I just had to put that out there. Save the empire. Um, Chrissy, are you happy now, by the way? I am very. Okay. Thank
3: you. Um,
2: you did this. So, but it was really working with other people who were in similar fields, who were junior to me. Not, again, not senior people, but junior to me, all women, um, who were actually my mentors, but who were looking... Oh, not my mentors, but my mentees. Again, I think a good mentor-mentee relationship is not unidirectional, it's bi-directional. Yeah. Right? So I feel weird saying who I was their mentor, but we were in that mentoring relationship with each other, sort of saying, ask me the key questions like, who are you? Why do you want to fight this fight? Is this the fight you want to, is this the hill you want to die on? And like, that was really helpful mm-hmm. to me. Oddly enough, two of them now ended up in tenure truck jobs, but mashallah. But mm. you know, that was, that wasn't the fight I was willing to have. And it was useful to have them have that conversation with me. And that that was that, the transition moment. But again, because I still am a scholar, right? And that, and I also want to shout out those those scholarly networks and then the peer network right I mean Simran and I we live what do we say five blocks from each other hmm. right we live five blocks from each other like people like him people who I've met through the media training and work I've done through the op-ed project and Auburn media that have allowed me to meet other people who are in similar boats that I think is important to recognize as well and of course great people like Chrissy um, who um, we're just calling everybody's calling her a mentor today right Chrissy has
3: absolutely mentored me, absolutely. She's,
2: she's, She's the chair and chief mentor of the Applied Religious Studies Group, so yeah. Yes. Are you coming back up? I am coming back
5: up. I think this just just is actually limits because on you. I feel like I need to be responsive, and since you guys are throwing labels at me, I'm going to like step into it.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Lead so, it just in. Just very
5: quickly, I just want to say no. the Applied Religious Studies Committee exists. I am holding in my hand a leaflet with all of the information on what we're doing this year. We've got 12 sessions, uh, some more this afternoon with Career Services uh, Resource Officers. And um, come meet people. Talk to people. Introduce yourself. Trade cards. We like to be helpful. Um, I've decided that my new slogan is no grad student left behind, but I'm gonna expand that and say, you know, no early career scholar left behind or really no, no anybody who wants to find another way to do this left behind. So, I'm
0: gonna hand this to you. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, On the mentorship thing, I just wanted to like lift up three things. One is senior scholars who have an eye toward building alternative institutions outside of academia and have a mind toward validating um, the scholarship of people who work outside that and two in my own life of Mark Jordan and um, that and the the network that he provided has created a I mean really a, like my primary, academic kinship group really is the way to say it, and it is endured. And it's because he has a mind, he understands marginality and has a mind for building institutions and connections outside of that. And the other group that I would call out for that is the uh, Congregational Studies Project, which is a sociology of religion group. Um, Nancy Ammerman, Steve Warner, and a bunch of other people who I don't know if it took them time or not to um, include um, contingency folks in it, but always welcomed me with completely open arms and and listened to my own perspective on navigating that with open minds open hearts um strategic heads and nothing but generous so there are places and people and i would i would and i would say two more things like never underestimate the power of our own mutual mentorship i mean i think that Many of us who have come up together, mentor each other in these questions, and we know more than senior people about how to navigate this, so we need to do that to each other, and that, I mean, it's like as old school feminists, and it's also contemporary, it's um, the way, I think. I think there's just no underestimating how important that is, however inexperienced we feel in this. Um, most senior people are more inexperienced in it. Um, and for me personally one thing that's been really important is always having conversation partners outside of the academy and people that are suspicious of the academy yes. just to keep it real. So I have ongoing conversations and like like serious like this is what I'm doing every month is this a good use of my time conversations with activists and with writers like fiction writers who don't who respect it but don't, revere it in a way that keeps me honest and keeps me flexible in in how I'm thinking about stuff, so, yeah.
3: Um, I want to just echo what I hear Hussein and Lynn saying in terms of the importance of of being in the presence of folks who can support you. Um, I should also say that a number of the folks that I met through Twitter have spent in-person time with me in really, again, lovely, generous ways. If Keisha Ali ever invites you over for bagels, A, she means it. B, you should expect to stay four to six hours. I really thought we were doing like a cute, oh, we're gonna hang out for an hour. No. (laughs) um, And I also, yeah, wanna call out the work of folks like Omid Safi, like Ed Curtis, and particularly uh, Mark Jordan, who, again, built very conscientiously, well before, I think, folks were having conversations about how do we build cohorts that are not institutional but are affinity uh, and bring them together not just to workshop their own work but to really create this, this network of support. I'm being very squishy because this is how I met actually both Lynn and Heather um, and some of the uh, like some of my other just absolute favorite people in the academy and the work that I have seen come out of that collaboration has been staggering and, joke, yeah. it, and it's also I think very much because we, have, we were given the opportunity to know and support each other, right? So um, Ken Brittenall, who had skipped the AAR this year, because he's smart, smarter than all of us, uh, <laughs> had, I mean, actively advocated for the uh, dissertation fellowship that I had and read every shitty word of my shitty dissertation and gave beautiful, generous feedback the AIDS AIDS, AIDS and HIV project that I know you're working on came out of collaborations with Anthony, right? Like, we have all worked and supported and thought about each other's work because we were given that opportunity by a brilliant but also just unimaginably kind and patient senior scholar.
0: Can I add something about that too? Just to like say what we're talking about because he, Also, because a project like that had the ability to think outside the boundaries of time. We're talking like 10 days in person, face to face. Like, who does that? You know, I mean, who can even think that they can take that kind of time out of their calendar? But boy, being able to think outside of those structures and to say like, no, there's a value in 15 people sequestering themselves for two weeks in a hotel. This is how we're going to do it and see if it works. I mean, yeah, I think that. Like thinking out, thinking temporally different and in FaceTime different. um, I think that
3: stuff's really important. I really think it is. And I I will say, too, that Mark Jordan has been the model very much for how I'm thinking about these summer trainings because I have done this in a couple different ways. And I honestly think that was um, probably the most productive collaborative workshop I've ever done. It was also the first one I did, so I'm like, (laughs) that's not sure. But again, making space for that work to come together, but also giving folks space just to be in community with each other, to kind of build natural affinities and figure out what it is to be in relationship with folks who are not in your program and aren't even necessarily in your smaller subfield is just, we could talk about Mark Jordan all day. He's great. Omid is. Omid. Omid. If you have not met Omid, find Omid. Omid already loves you.
2: (laughs) Uh, You know, Megan, I want to pick up on a word you used a lot just now, which is collaboration, because I think the mentorship relationship is important. But again, it is bi-directional. And I think the Academy pushes us to think that we are operating as individuals, Mm. right? And I think the question of collaboration is so, so important. And again, I don't think it's accidental, that you find it happening on people who've generally been marginalized in higher ed, mm-hmm. right? Because we don't, we operate, we know what resource scarcity is mm-hmm. because we've always been on the receiving end of it. And so to not work collaboratively has always struck me as very odd. Um, and I think that's another thing we need to start thinking about uh, in terms of the academies. What does collaboration look like? like I, I mentioned these book projects I'm working on they're all with co-editors or co-authors, and people are like, well, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, hey, I don't doubt that I'm an expert in my field, and being an expert means I don't know everything about my field. So what are the big gaping holes in my knowledge? Let me go find the person who fills those holes and work with that person. And people are like, yeah, but you don't get credit for it. Then I'm like, wait, wait, I thought our point was knowledge production and educating people. What is this credit thing? Like, do I get an extra life? You know that doesn't quite work in Muslim theology, so it doesn't really matter to me. Like I don't understand what the issue is, and so I yeah. think.
3: Well, but I also I want to come back to. You. Absolutely, I am taking really seriously. I gave something of a barn-burning paper on Friday around.
2: And I'm sorry I missed it.
3: It's fine. There are several live tweets. Also, I have it on I Good see. Authority from Twitter that I'm stupid. I don't know anything about religion. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I I did a lot of thinking and engagement with Sarah Ahmed's Living a Feminist Life and thinking about space invaders in the academy, right, Mm -hmm. where we are occupying spaces we were never meant to be, we are the problems. Um, And I I wanna take really seriously who feels safe collaborating, right? One of the reasons that I think this work was possible for me is because the department I came up in at the moment that I was in it had incredible, generous, kind, non-competitive people And I think part of that is institutional. UNC, when I was there, is not that space of, you're all competing against each other, only your work matters. Your intellectual production is the only thing that matters. So that was my training. And then I was hashtag blessed to be in these spaces where there were resources, and there was the generosity and patience, particularly as the absolute most junior scholar in that room, um, which was a very intimidating room to be in. I was fangirling at Lynn on the bus when I met her, because I had just read something in Nova like, you know, I was like, oh my god, I have notes about you in my COPS list. Um, I didn't even know who Katie Lofton was, but that changed. Um, <laughs> right, but like, how, do, how do we make people feel safe in that work, I think, is really important. How do we get past this academic zero-sum game, right, where the only thing that matters is you're getting credit for your ideas rather than promoting a broader understanding of this this system that we are all swimming in that is trying to kill us all, some more quickly than others.
1: Another good moment to ask another question. I'm going to ask you the question that scares me Great. about um, not being in a tenure track position. And I'll say I also realized. So the question is, can you imagine yourself 10 or 20 like once mm-hmm. the once yeah the the earth has died. Yep. <laughs> it's also, we could be apocalyptic. Yeah, Back of the snowpiercer train is yep. where I'm at. Yep, yep. Um, but then I'll actually give a caveat is I've had conversations with some of my tenure track colleagues at my institution and they have a version of their frightened thing mm-hmm. is like, oh yeah, 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, like I'm not ready to retire, mm-hmm. and my institution is, goes financially insolvent, and I have no job, mm-hmm. and I've been sp- spit out into a job market where I've done one thing all my life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and at an age where, anyway, so yeah. so there's a, um, that's to say there's a, an apocalyptic scenario for this question, even for people who are, supposedly in those jobs it tells you what your benchmarks are, are all the way through. Yeah. So y'all don't have benchmarks. <laughs> no one tells you what your career goals are supposed to be. Um, what do you see for yourself? Or what can you imagine for yourself? What do you hope for yourself um, 10, 15, or 20 years from now? Who has a plan? No? <laughs>
3: right. I, I have objectives.
2: Yeah. Um, and Simran's already hinted at some of them. Um, again, I, I think this is because of some conversations we've had that um, I feel like I'm repeating him uh, a little bit, but it's good. It's he's smart. Uh, it's wor- he, he, we should repeat him every so often. Just you shake
1: your head. <laughs> smart. He's been he's been awfully quiet, so
2: I feel like I need to bring him into the conversation. because so. Megan and I will just dominate for like I don't know what you're talking about. That's uh, <laughs> um, but look, what are what are my goals in doing this? Is there financial stability? Um, do I get to do what I love and what I'm passionate about? Do I get to spend time with my family in the way I want to spend time with my family? Is those objectives are being met, I'm okay. And the thing I've realized is that a lot of my work started out as very short term. Like if I'm doing a, 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 a quick consult on a newspaper story um, or a, a, a video segment, If it's long-form, it'll go for maybe a month. If it's a video, again, that has some time that's not uh, news-hook dependent, maybe six weeks. I'm now looking at projects that are going five, six, seven, eight years, right? So I'm not in a constant hustle mode. I have some stability. Um, And so I'm meeting all my objectives. And you talk about the apocalyptic scenario. I want to just offer two quick thoughts on that. So people are now realizing that they've set up a self-destructive system and they didn't care when it was hurting other people, but now that they might be victims of the system Uh that they set up, oh, you mean Trump voters. Gotcha. I feel you, right? Like, America's racist. What? Racism doesn't stop just because of the color of your skin. It's also classist. You're the sucker who created the system and now you're getting bit on the ass by it and now you want to hate people for it because you're not benefiting from the system you set up for yourself. Okay. Ask me if I care. Um... Tracy knows my favorite phrase, I don't have any fucks to give, thank you, <laughs> moving on. Uh, I am not the empathy builder, um, right, my, I, I, I cannot speak to you if your success is routed in my failure, thank you, rooted in, in my failure.
3: Or your destruction.
2: Or my destruction, thank you, I was trying to remember the Baldwin quote, thank you, and that's what I was, thank you, you know what I was trying to get at, read Baldwin. Um, <laughs> All of it, Everything. All the time. always. Um, the flip side of it is what is, we've heard stories, and I don't know them as intimately, Chrissy's been sharing some of them with me, but people who are in tenure-track positions who are like, yeah, I did it, and I don't know why I did it, and I don't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right, which is another thing we have to consider as
6: well.
3: Do some of the folks who have been quiet maybe want to, do you want to say?
6: Sure, I mean, I, c- I, can, I can pick up off that last piece that you say and said I was tenure-tracked. Um, I was two years in, I was commuting from New York to San Antonio. Uh, my, wife, my wife was living in New York uh, in her position. She's a, she's a physician um, and she works on human rights issues with refugee populations. Um, and so, two aspects that, that I want to lift up here. One is, uh, for me, my, my measure of success was never job, 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 which is what our, our culture teaches us. Not just American culture, but especially in the academic context. Um, And so it was very difficult for me to talk to my advisors who helped me get the job, um, and the faculty who had brought me in and actually bent over backwards to bring me in um, and to tell them, you know, I have to go family first, like, that matters to me. And it wasn't about, you know, I don't like the job, I love the job, it was a dream job for me. Um, But it was about, you know, the the balance of priorities. So exactly what you're saying, right? Our our happiness has more to do with, life than it does to do with profession and our you know the psych studies show us that too (laughs) so so that's one the other thing and this is this is where it gets hard for me to answer your question in a a way that's actually helpful because um going back to what lynn was talking about around privilege um i you know i'm married to a physician um it's okay married to a doctor (laughs) Um, and it's um and i come from an upper middle class background where my parents are still able and willing to support us if we need it And so I actually had a conversation with my parents this past weekend. I am, uh, I'm on a postdoc right now. Um, I am probably not going to have a position next year. Uh, And I called my parents this weekend and said, hey, you know, I have some writing projects that I care about. Um, You know, would you be willing to loan us some money this upcoming year uh, as I figure those out? And so, you know, not everyone has that sort Mm -hmm. of situation. And so it's not fair for me to speak about, well, what am I thinking about 15, 20 years down the line? uh, Because I have... The support, which I could I could lean into that and be fine. Um, so it is it is a position of privilege in a sense to be able to say, what are my objectives and what do I want to do? Right? There's there's more to life than that. And, and Hussein brings up the point of financial stability, um, but that looks different for a lot of people. And it it also depends on your context too. I have two kids. We're growing they're growing up in New York City. Like we need we need to make money. Um, and our um, possibilities of revenue are different, right? Like not every scholar of religion can do a public speaking tour, right? Like it's, I understand that these things aren't real in the same way for everyone. But I think for me, it always comes back down to, um, what gives me the satisfaction and the happiness in life and what I think I see from people who are satisfied and happy in life are those whose work aligns with their values and that's that's the first thing Hussein it really struck me it was the first thing Hussein said where like if you're not giving up your integrity in terms of what you're doing right that's where that's where we find happiness and i think our culture pushes us to lose sight of that mm-hmm. and and we get deluded as folks who are on the margins we we get deluded by this sort of idea that if we just had more stability or if we just had more um, income or these things that, that we would then be fine. But I think a lot of times that comes with a cost, right? And, and so I think we, we ought to be realistic about that as we think about the grass being greener on the other side.
2: I just want to, oh, sorry, Matthew. Oh, I, I
4: was just going to say,
6: just to, to
4: follow on what you were saying. Uh, I'm sorry. Just to follow on what you were saying, I, I know I've given a lot of thought about what I value in, in making choices about where I work. Um, and trying to keep a mortgage, trying to pay a mortgage through the recession and with young kids kind of really did shape how I thought about my job situation. Um, my partner is also an academic in religious studies who was also on the job market. Oh. Um, she got sued by the diocese that she was studying not to, if, if mm-hmm. she, she was threatened to be, she was threatened with a lawsuit if she published her work. And this was after she had a book deal. So we're both kind of, we both, she teaches online as well. And she also does various gigs. So we've kind of, we've made the decision that uh, we kind of like what we're doing. We kind of like having the freedom to do our own projects. Um, I know that by working for several different places, if I lose my job, that's just one job. Uh-huh. I still have income coming in. That's, and, I mean, I, I do make choices about security and about freedom and about, um, about my family. And I volunteer at my kid's school and it's, it's the greatest thing. Mm-hmm. But I know in a lot of other positions, I wouldn't be able to or I wouldn't have that choice. Um, So I also know that I'm very fortunate in that.
3: I just, I feel like this has been lurking in this conversation, but I want to name it out loud, the part where we're people who have bodies who do this job, bodies that often like to be in proximity to other beloved bodies, and what if they got to be in the same place, right? I was in Syracuse, my partner was in Maine, so that that still has taken a toll on my body. And it's also very much a part of why I don't have a 10 to 15 year out. Um, I I have been pretty public about this, but I have MS. And I don't know how much longer my body's going to work. So the only thing I can focus on right now is what's possible through these networks that have been made available to me. Um, But also just really acknowledging out loud how much better my life got after I gave up on this... This bill of goods that I had been sold, right? That like you work hard enough, you do this job because you love it, and again, that is also such a position of privilege. Like people don't clean toilets because they love cleaning toilets; they clean toilets because they need to get paid, right? The fact that I I thought that I was entitled, frankly, if I just worked hard enough, to this literal fairy tale life, is hard to grapple with because I still feel entitled to it, right? I also want to say. Again, my life worked out in weird ways that it should not have, and I'm incredibly grateful for that, but like, nobody just finds a senior scholar who magically makes almost a million dollars shows up, show up and then just like makes you a job for four years. That doesn't happen, except that it did. I will say, though, that for me, the moment where I went, you know what, this isn't working, fuck it, I'm out. I'm going to live where I want to live. I'm going to live with my partner and my dog, poss- possibly most importantly. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to live in a place that feels good for me to be in and Figure it out from there. Then I weirdly got a job at an R1 in Boston, which, like, what even is that? I don't know. Um, But again, I also wrote jokes jokes about dogs on the internet for a year, and that happened. And that was also possible because of relationship stuff. I also, the other piece that I want to name, because again, I feel like it came up a lot, is the reason that my work is possible is because my spouse supported me for a year. I had jobs. They would not have kept me alive. Right, so I think this is another place where I know uh, Samira Mehta has really pushed us to, to name that as a position of privilege, of the, the kind of work that becomes possible when you have somebody else in your life who is supporting you financially, or just making it possible so that you don't have to support yourself alone. Yeah,
0: This is not a 10 to 15 year plan, because I do not have one, although I usually have a five year plan, although I don't right now. <laughs> right now I have a finish the book plan. It could well be a five-year plan that is entirely within the realm of possibility. Check in in five years. I know you will. Um, but the thing there's something in our conversation that just makes me want to articulate something about the point of privilege and how I um, uh, uh, how I think of. I, I think people have answered this question by thinking about what they orient toward, not necessarily toward a job or kind of security, but the things that they orient toward. And so one of the things I orient toward is doing the kind of work that I want to do on the communities, that I want to do on the histories that I think um, should be told and that I'm in a position to tell, um, that are marginalized or unknown and um, align with my values. And one thing I have thought about a great deal about privilege is that, um, and this is complicated and I have mixed feelings about it, but it's where I come down of like, especially with, Having a, a degree of privilege, it becomes even more unconscionable to um, um, uh, manipulate my work around the demands of an institution that would compromise that. Because if I'm going to use my privilege at all, then the centrality of the kind of work that I am doing has to be the focal point. Because to, to like I say, to, um, to. To limit that work on the basis of institutional demands that I do not require nor do I believe in seems like a bad North Star. And the quality of the kind of work that I do seems like the more important North Star. And so if it means foregoing stuff, it means foregoing stuff. And I know that that is something that I have because of the position that I'm in, but it also, um, it's an important part of it for me. So it's just one part of how I think about what I orient myself around
3: in thinking about what 5, 10, 15 years looks like. I'm so glad you decided to more than moderate.
6: (laughs) I I have another, a a different thought on that question, which I think is a great question, and um, it's around what creates safety and security um, for us in precarious positions. And I think I think there are two things that I do, that my parents taught me, um, but I don't do them consciously, they're just sort of embedded in me now, and that is um, relationships, I think. And even what you've heard folks describe, a lot of opportunities, especially in moments of need, come from people who care about you and have those positions. Um, and so, and I've, I've been finding that over and over again. Like, this is, this is a, an embarrassing sort of example to give because it's sort of ridiculous, but with the speaking agency I signed with, I have not gotten a single speaking gig from someone in the public who has reached out and said, I want to hear that guy. Like, they don't know me, they don't care about me. <laughs> the only people who have ever asked to have me come speak at their programs are people who know me or people who know people who know me. Right, and that's a, like a very simple example of like, yeah, that's how life works. Like everything is about relationship. And so 15 years down the line, if I'm out of a job and my wife is out of a job and we need income, like I'm not going to go throw job applications online. I'm gonna go to people who I know who at that point will have, will have power and will care about me. So, so that's one way of thinking about safety down the line is actually like genuinely investing in, in people you care about. And that's another way of thinking about mentorship too by the way um the other way of answering that question is is going back to something chrissy said earlier about like developing the skills thinking about the skills thinking about the passions and actually starting to open up doors a little bit in areas that you're interested in and might find yourself up in so like megan's a great example of like she didn't think she would end up in this sort of public scholarship role. She had an interest in journalism. Um, she sort of kept that alive in a sense and like it's turned into a gig for her right and that's that's a safety net and it's only a safety net because she had developed that and she knew she cared about it and she had actually kept it active and so for me that looks like the civil rights work that I care about right and I keep those relationships and one of the things if I don't if I don't get a job next year and the book deal doesn't go through like I may look at positions with like, the Human Rights Commission in New York City, and I have relationships there, and I have skills there. So like, that's another way of thinking about like, still doing the work you care about and giving yourself a safety net without ever feeling like the world is crashing because you lost that job because you're still doing the work you care about. So,
2: I want to put on the capitalist hat for a second based a little bit on what Simran said. Um, one, I want to explicitly point out that he has referred positions to me. Um, I think I've done it for you as well, but not the same frequency, right? I mean, that's that's what relationships are, is like watching out for each other. But to also talk about, if we're talking about safety, right, and thinking about, or security, uh, rather, uh, is thinking about the financial aspect of what it is we're doing. So I'm gonna talk about myself as a consultant, right? So if I want, and, and to Simran's point, like. I could go to my family. They would help, but it wouldn't be with ease, but I know I could count on them. We carried a lot of debt beyond student loan debt for a long while while I was adjuncting. Um, Once I started working for pay, Mm. it was not an issue, right? Like We weren't actually living beyond our means, it's just what was expected. But we, we did carry debt. And I think it's important to have these conversations as directly as possible i'm not going to share numbers because there are limits but you know as you think about your consult if you if you decide to be a consultant or get a speaking fee right you know what's not included in there is your health insurance costs Mm -hmm. is your retirement costs Mm -hmm. is your ready day fund costs so i know what my time is worth or what i want my time to be worth an hour and then i've got to add all these other things onto it right so, just as you think about that, please keep that in mind. If there's nothing else you take away from the practical aspects of what we said, I think what we said is important. But pr- practically, like if you think you're worth thousand dollars an hour, great, charge seventeen fifty because you need that seventeen fifty to go to that, all that other stuff, right? Or two thousand because then you get two fifty to buy ice cream. You know, it's a lot of ice cream, but you get ice cream. So you know. Keep I have very expensive taste in ice cream. So.
3: <laughs> well, and I, I think that's true, too, right? Because nobody teaches us how to consult. So how do we know how much we're worth? How do we learn that? Honestly, weirdly, I learned that from the federal government. They're going to pay me $125 an hour to tell them why they ask stupid questions about Islam. That's where I'm going to start setting my rates. I will continue to jack that as I go farther. But also planning for things like travel time, travel costs, right? Don't always get re- And you don't think to do that until the first job. You're like, oh.
2: Prep time is work time.
3: Prep time is absolutely work, Travel time. Time, is work time. Travel right? time learning is work time. Right, learning to track your time carefully so that you can account for it. If you can spreadsheet it, you are so much more likely to be paid. So, like stuff like that is really helpful. I also though just want to come back because that was a beautiful point, and also because now I have a mission to quote Star Wars in every single room that I'm in. <laughs> is that this is this is a place that I've found myself coming back to and over and over again? Of because I hate military. Metaphors. I don't want to think about this as a battle, but at the same time, it's hard not to feel like so much of what we're invested in is under attack right now. And so, frankly, the moment that I come back to in my brain over and over again is Rose Tico saying this is how we're going to win. It's not fighting what we hate. It's protecting what we love.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You can well, never I
3: go wrong coding Star Wars. I would
0: say that we have successfully talked for two and a half hours. So it seems like we could go for two and a half more without. I mean, Hussein I mean, and I could.
3: We'll, <laughs> <take it. laughs>
2: we'll build a court
4: outside. Uh, I but I want to take this
0: opportunity just to thank everybody for being so, for their candor and risk and openness to this conversation. Um, I think it's been really productive,
6: and I thank you all for being yeah, here. Thank and, you. Um,
4: yes. <laughs>